Our sermon text for this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 13, so turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Hebrews 13, verses 17 through 25. Hebrews 13, 17 to 25, and before I read that for us, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus, the Good Shepherd, the one who leads the sheep, we pray, Father, that uh, right now you would teach us, teach us how to follow Jesus, most of all. Uh, teach us from your word, teach us from Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, lead us and guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 13, 17 to 25. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. Well, there are two dangers when it comes to leaders talking about leadership. The first is coming off or worse, being power hungry, right? If a church leader starts talking about the importance of submission, it can seem self-serving, which of course leads to the second danger, which is abdicating my responsibility to lead. If I'm afraid to appear self-serving and so afraid to talk about leadership and so don't, well, then I failed to lead well at that point. Hopefully we can navigate those waters a little bit this morning. Well, many New Testament letters end with personal notes concerning the relationship between the writer and the readers. And Hebrews is no different. After a general exhortation to submit to leaders, the writer continues to comment on his relationship with his readers. And in that, we find uh, three key things, not, not about leadership per se, but about followership. We find here not a, a leadership training program, but a, but a mini followership training program, uh, though we will see some clear implications for leaders as well. And so what does it mean uh, to be good followers in the context of the church? We'll see three things, and you can find them uh, in your bulletin. Uh, you can find the outline in your bulletin. Uh, those three things are this. One, submit to those who are accountable for you. Two, pray for those who pray for you. And three, bear with those who exhort you. So number one, submit to those who are accountable for you. 
there are at least two kind of prominent errors in following, right? There, there is the, uh, they aren't any better than me, so why should I submit to them approach? Uh, they're not smarter than me. They're not godlier than me. They're not nicer than me, so why should I listen to them? Who died and made them boss of me anyway? The second error is my leaders can do no wrong. Let me say uh, two things up front. The, the first is that it is true. Your leaders aren't any better than you, right? Uh, in, in this church or any other church, right? We're not smarter than you. We're not godlier than you. Uh, we may not be nicer than you. If submission were based on a comparison, we wouldn't be in the running. And second, your leaders can do wrong, right? In fact, we sin daily in thought, word, and deed which then begs the question, right? So then, then why obey? And yet that very question shows a, a misunderstanding, I think, of both obedience and authority. So look again at verse 17. Verse 17, the writer says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. And the first thing to notice here is that we obey uh, leaders, whoever they are, in whatever situation, we obey leaders because they are leaders. Uh, so it doesn't say obey your leaders and submit to them for they are smarter than you and they know best after all. Uh, that's not what it says. It says obey your leaders and submit to them for or because they are keeping watch over your souls. That is, this is their job. Uh, their job is to oversee and your job is to obey. It's not a matter of better or worse or higher or lower, intrinsic superiority or inferiority, but of roles. In any ordered society, right, different people have different roles. Using Paul's body metaphor from 1 Corinthians 12, not everyone can be an eye or a hand or a foot or the body just wouldn't work. And we know this instinctively, I think, right? We have that saying, uh, too many cooks in the kitchen spoils the stew. Uh, no, we, we need every person doing their separate part, whatever that is, for life in any society to work properly. Which brings me to another observation, right? Not only do we, we obey leaders because they are leaders, uh, but we must obey all kinds of leaders, right? At, at first, the writer simply uses the generic word leaders. Uh, he doesn't say uh, elders or pastors or teachers or deacons or whatever, right? He just says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, he does go on to define what leaders he's talking about as those who are keeping watch over your souls. So he's talking about religious leaders. Uh, but given the whole teaching of scripture, right, the initial statement could stand on its own, right? We must obey our leaders, period. Uh, that includes civil leaders, religious leaders, family leaders, and so on. And, and so in, in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, uh, we read, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. You see, on a whole in Scripture, uh, citizens are to submit to governors, children are to submit to parents, wives are to submit to their husbands, employees are to submit to employers, uh, church members are to submit to church leaders. And that should suffice to show uh, that no one is exempt from submitting to someone. Or to put it positively, everyone submits to someone, and not just in that we all submit to God, right? All of us find ourselves in position of submission to other people. 
Again, not because they're better than us, not because uh, they, they are somehow uh, intrinsically superior, but because that is the role they play in that particular relationship. And yet you might be thinking, well, what if my leaders make a bad decision? Do I still have to obey? And, and I'm not talking here about clearly sinful decisions, right? We, we must obey God rather than men, right? If a leader asks you to do something contrary to scripture, God, God's will trumps human mandates every time. Uh, but most of life is, is not in those kind of clearly black and white issues. Uh, what about the things that are not so clear? What about the things that, that are just bad decisions in our minds, not necessarily sinful? What do you do then? Well, uh, there are lots of things you can do, right? You can talk to your leaders, you can plead with your leaders, you can discuss matters with your leaders, but in the end, we are called to submit. I don't have to agree with the government's tax plans, but I still have to pay my taxes. That's just the way uh, leadership and authority works. Children, uh, you don't have to agree with your bedtime, but you still have to go to bed when you're told employees, right? You don't have to agree with the direction your boss is taking your company. But as long as you are in that company, you have to follow his or her lead. See, so submission and obedience really do mean just that, right? Submission and obedience. You submit your will to that of another in given circumstances in which they have authority and you are under that authority. It doesn't necessitate agreement. Uh, if you only obey when you agree, you aren't obeying. You're just agreeing. And it's not blind, right? You, you have to be able to evaluate, are they asking me to do something contrary to the express commands of scripture? You have to evaluate so that you can know the answer to that question so that if they are asking you to do something contrary to the express commands of scripture, you can decidedly disobey. What does this look like in the church? I think what does submission and obedience look like in the church? Think about three areas. Uh, first, when it comes to teaching, you don't have to agree with everything that we teach. Uh, you're welcome to, to voice your disagreement with us, to talk about it and so on. But you do need to be willing not to stir up dissent if you disagree. And so submitting to the, the teachers in the church means giving us a fair hearing on the one hand and not stirring up dissent on the other. And so as a member of any particular church, right, you're saying that you're willing to submit to the teaching of the elders, even though you may not always agree with them. Or second, consider uh, clear biblical moral issues, right? The, the church does not have the authority to make uh, decisions for people. Uh, rather, our job is to point to scripture and seek to persuade uh, people of the legitimate applications of scripture to their lives. The church's power is, is, as it's sometimes put, the church's power is persuasive, not punitive, and yet there, there is a kind of coercive power when, when the church is called upon to discipline people uh, who have decided to live uh, immoral lives, to discipline them by withholding the, the Lord's table or excommunicating them ultimately from the church. And so submission to, to, to sort of the clear biblical moral issues here means you're willing, willing to be persuaded, if we can persuade you, of what scripture teaches on that topic. Uh, not, not that you're ready to listen to empty arguments, but that you're open to good ones. Or as uh, Paul put it, you open your heart to us. And it means if you are brought up under some kind of discipline, if, we, if, you, if you need to be corrected because you're living in a life that is contrary to God's will, right? you take that seriously. 
third, consider the direction of the church, right? Any particular church is going gonna, is gonna to have a particular mission uh, for that location, that time, that place in which God has planted them. And there are lots of decisions that, that must be made, which uh, scripture ultimately leaves up to individual churches. In, in these cases, you submit to the leadership of the church. Again, so, so what time do we have a worship service? Uh, this, is not a, this is not a black and white issue. It's not a biblical issue, it's a, but it is a wisdom issue. Someone has to decide, and hence why God has given leaders in the church. Otherwise, everyone shows up when they please, and you end up with chaos. But if we're going to meet at a time and a place, right, somebody has to make that decision and appoint that time, which is part of the role of the leaders in the church. And so submitting to church leadership means uh, supporting decisions uh, that they make and, and the direction in which the leaders want to take the church. Again, it doesn't mean you can't disagree. It doesn't mean you can't voice your dissent. It doesn't mean you can't have a conversation, right? As a member of a particular church, you're saying that you're willing to submit to the decisions of the elders, and even though you may not always agree with them. Now, there is a flip side to this, of course, right? There is the responsibility of church leaders. Again, look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, they are keeping watch over your souls, what does it mean to keep watch? Well, this language here echoes uh, that of Ezekiel chapter 3, which we read earlier. Verse 17 uh, of Ezekiel 3, God says to Ezekiel, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. A watchman were those who stood on the city walls and cried out when danger was near. How do you keep, your, how do you keep watch over someone's soul? Well, the job of church leadership is at least at least part of the job of church leadership is to alert you to spiritual dangers as they come close, whether that is kind of broad cultural dangers out there or something in your own life, a line that you are crossing, a desire that you are feeding, some folly that you are contemplating, some behavior you are carrying out. Now, this keeping watch is serious, and it leads us to consider uh, to what I consider to be the scariest line in the Bible. Verse 17 says, as those who will have to give an account. Right? They are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Now, what that says to me is that I am accountable to God on some level for your spiritual well-being. That scares me to death. I feel inadequate to watch over my own spiritual well-being, much less that of my wife and boys, much less that of an entire church. But I will have to have to answer on the day of judgment for how I care for you today. All of that is to say that church leadership, right, is, is ultimately hard and serious work, which makes sense out of the final thing the writer says in verse 17, which is where he says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, parents, you probably know this well, right? The groan of parenting. Uh, when you look at uh, your child and you say, oh, not again, or, or you did not just do that, or I don't believe that just came out of your mouth. Well, apparently uh, our writer sees the same possibility of groaning church leaders, so he exhorts us, all of us, let them do this. Let them keep watch. Let them lead with joy and not with groaning. He's saying, don't make it hard on them. 
right? They've got a job to do. Let it be a joy for them to fulfill that role. Why? Well, he says that would be of no advantage to you, right? If they're groaning, that would be of no advantage to you, meaning it would be disadvantageous for you. You know, weary church leaders are not the best church leaders they can be, right? Again, uh, some of you know this as parents, right? Your children can wear you down and then you begin to let things go because you just don't have the energy to do otherwise. Wearing your leaders down, right, doesn't help them lead. Now, if, if you're wondering, as we think about this uh, leadership and, and authority, if you're wondering, well, where's the gospel in this? What does grace have to do with submission to leaders in the church or otherwise? What does Jesus have to do with obeying authorities? Well, first consider the obvious, right? Jesus submitted to those over him. He submitted to his father in heaven. He came not to do his own will, but the will of his father, he tells us. And yet he submitted to his earthly parents as well. Uh, were they holier than him? Well, he was sinless, right? Were they smarter than him? No. Uh, were they better or superior or greater than him? No, 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 right? But they were his parents. And so Jesus submitted his will to theirs. And that was true of civil and political authorities as well. Jesus allowed himself to be arrested. He allowed himself to be tried. He allowed himself ultimately to be crucified. Yes, he, he was submitting to his heavenly father's will, but he was submitting to the governing authorities as well, even the corrupt governing authorities of his day. He recognized Pilate's authority to put him to death. Now, he said, you would not have that authority if my father hadn't given it to you, but he nevertheless recognized it as authority. He was obedient to even to the point of death. Jesus was kind of big on obedience, and, and then he gives us his spirit, the spirit of sonship, that we might live in submission to our Father, which includes submission to whatever authorities our Father puts in our lives. Now, besides Jesus' example, right, there's another way that the gospel leads to obedience. We, we often don't want to submit to others because we don't trust them. Right? We don't trust our leaders, and so we seek to do our own thing. We think we know what's best. If I want what's best for me, I must pursue my own good in my own way. But the cross shows us that God is for us. Right? Romans 8.31 says God is for us. This is demonstrated in the cross, as Paul goes on to say in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, that is, he gave his son up as a sacrifice for our sins on the cross, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, if God is for us, our God, who is sovereign over the address of every person on the planet, if this God calls us to submit, then even if my earthly leaders don't know or don't want what is best for me, my heavenly father does, and I can trust him. And so I can obey out of that trust. So that's kind of the, the followership principle number one, submit to those who are accountable for you. Number two, pray for those who pray for you. Leaders are not self-sufficient. We have this image of the leader as a confident, powerful person who gets things done. Well, that view of leadership creates spiritually unhealthy leaders. Leaders, like everybody else, are weak, needy, and sinful. Uh, the, the weaknesses and, and, and sinfulness of leaders often leads, of course, to criticisms. 
And how do you respond when your leaders fail? How do you respond when they make what you judge to be a poor decision? Uh, how do you respond when, they, when their sin comes to the surface? How do you respond when their humanity shows through? Well, often we criticize. Why? Well, because we have these false expectations for leaders that they're, they're supposed to be perfect in every way. And when they don't live up, we think it's our right and duty to criticize them. There is another way, of course, that our writer exhorts us to hear rather than criticize them, you could pray for them. You know, throughout scripture, uh, many, many leaders recognize their insufficiency. Exodus chapter three, verse 11, Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Judges chapter six, verse 15, Gideon says, please Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 6. Jeremiah says in response to God appointing him a prophet, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. Isaiah has a vision of, of God who's about to call him uh, to ministry. And Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Even Saul, right, who would become king and not end well, he begins well in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 21. Uh, when he is uh, told that he's to be king, he says, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? See, leading is difficult and no one is sufficient for the task and People throughout history, right, have recognized that when they've been called to lead, that I don't think I can do this. I don't have what it takes. God, you're asking the wrong person, send somebody else. In fact, you might get to the point where you, you might well think that those who choose a position of leadership are either arrogant or insane or both. And thankfully, there is another option. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, Paul says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. See, Paul was not arrogant or insane, though he was one of the leaders in the early church. He was not arrogant or insane because he understood that he was not independent, but dependent upon the God of grace who equipped him for the task at hand. And this is why so often we find requests for prayer in New Testament letters. And Paul, in particular, was very sensitive to his need for the prayers of God's people. Romans chapter 15, verse 30, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. 2 Corinthians 1.11, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. Ephesians 6, 18 to 19, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, Paul says, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Philippians 1.19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. 
Colossians 4, 3, at the same time, pray also for me that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. 2 Thessalonians 3, uh, verse 1, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from the wicked and evil men. Philemon 22, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.25 says very simply, brothers, pray for us. Your leaders are needy. We are weak and frail and tempted and sinful. We need your prayers. We can accomplish nothing apart from the prayers of God's people. And given the, the, the difficulty of ministry and the myriad of temptations, we will not persevere apart from your prayers. And so I, I simply echo Paul's words, brothers and sisters, pray for us. And note that the prayers of God's people for their leaders are actually for the benefit of God's people. Uh, that's true here in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 18 and 19. Uh, the writer says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. See, the writer is apparently hindered in some way. Maybe he's in prison. That's certainly possible. Maybe there's some other more mundane problem in his way, but, but he desires their prayers that he might be restored to them sooner. Many of Paul's prayers that I just read were similar. Early church leaders knew they needed the prayers of God's people if they were to be a blessing to God's people. Your prayers for me and the elders are really a means of blessing for you and the church, right? The, the better we are at shepherding, the better for you, right? The better example we are as godly men, the better for you. The, the better our understanding of scripture, the better for you. The more faithful we are, the more diligent we are, the more humble we are as leaders in the church, the better for you. And not that you need a self-serving motive, I, I know, right? I know many of you are faithful to pray for me and the rest of the elders, and I thank you for that. But if you're slow to do that, right, know that it is to your benefit to pray for us. And, of course, the flip side is also true. Not only is the church called to pray for its leaders, one of our chief jobs is to pray for you. In verses 20 to 21, uh, the writer launches into a benediction. Now, a benediction is, is a blessing or a wish for God to do well to his readers. It's a kind of prayer uh, because he is asking God to bless. So look again at verses 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, there are lots of things uh, that we could say about this benediction, this prayer. And maybe at some point I'll come back to it and spend more time just on these two verses. But the, the thing I want to note right now is the fact of it, right? God's leaders pray for their people. They seek the blessing of their people from God. Samuel, speaking to Israel in the book of 1 Samuel, says this, 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23. He says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. And notice the two parts of Samuel's ministry there, prayer and instruction. 
Now, bring that forward, carry that forward into the New Testament. Notice the emphasis of the apostles' ministry. Acts chapter 6, verse 4, they say, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. See, the ministry of church leaders, leaders in the church, has stayed consistent from Samuel to the apostles to today. Prayer and the ministry of the word. And so as your elders, we pray for you. Now for Scott and David and Todd and Brian, notice the order, right? For both Samuel and the apostles, prayer comes first because all of our efforts are empty and meaningless if God is not at work. There is no point in our teaching. There's no point in our gathering together. There's no point in any of our shepherding work if God is not there to bless that work. Now, of course, God's blessing on his people is not limited to teaching or shepherding or any of that. And so prayer, prayer is the real fountain of blessing. Maybe we could say, uh, uh, bear with me with this, right? Uh, prayer is the, the handles on the faucets of God's blessing. Now, that may sound a bit hokey or worse, mechanistic, but actually, I, I think there's something there in that metaphor because handles don't make water come out. Uh, they merely open the way, right? There, there must be some other force causing the water to come forth. Well, that force is God's grace. But by prayer, we open ourselves up and open others up to receiving the blessing of our Father. And so uh, leaders, right, we must be devoted to praying for our church. And church, I can say that that we do, right? We, We met as a church session Thursday night, and we spent the first half of our meeting in sharing prayer requests and then in praying for the church. And so... uh, Submit to those who are accountable for you. Pray for those who pray for you, which works both ways, really, right? Uh, You praying for us and us praying for you. Finally, bear with those who exhort you. Verse 22, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Now, two things strike me right away. Uh, One is this letter is not brief at least not by 21st century American standards. And yet the writer has already told us there's there's more that he could have said. Hebrews chapter nine, verse five, he speaking of the tabernacle, he says, of these things, we cannot now speak in detail, right? He skims over things about the tabernacle that he wished he could say. There's always more to say. But the second thing that strikes me is this word bear. Bear with my word of exhortation. The writer could have chosen many words, He could have said, receive my word of exhortation. He could have said, hear my word of exhortation. He could have said, obey my word of exhortation, but he chose the word bear. Now to bear with is to practice patience. It's to endure some difficulty or pain, right? Now I don't like to think about the fact that you might have to bear with my preaching. And yet I know it's true. Now, look, there, there are certain things you should not tolerate in preaching, right? You don't tolerate outright heresy. You don't tolerate co-opting the pulpit for extra biblical agendas of the present age. But the truth is, there is much you must bear with. There are dangers with podcasts and live stream sermons in and of themselves. Those are not bad. But the danger is this. If I can listen to Tim Keller and John Piper and Paul Tripp or even deceased preachers like James Boyce, why why bother listening to my local pastor? He's not going to be as good. He's not going to be as engaging or insightful. In fact, you may have to bear with him. The question is, is he faithful? 
If he is faithful, bear with his faults. I pray that you would bear with my many faults and that you would bear with my words of exhortation. You see, when the preaching gets stale or even a little too personal, our temptation is just to move on, to go find something or someone new. But that's not how growth happens. Growth happens in the mundane and the routine of week after week, gathering with God's people, however that can happen. Sitting under the preaching of the word, bearing with the preacher's faults and foibles, and praying for God's blessing. Now, our writer ends with some tender words in verse 23. He says, uh, I, I, um, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you soon if he comes. Now, why would they care that Timothy had been released? Well, they love him. Uh, there, there are, these are not aloof leaders, but like Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2 eight, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. You know, in business or government, your leaders may never know you. Uh, you may never know them, but it ought not be so in the church, which means as a church grows, it needs more leaders, right? So, so that deep and meaningful can re relationships can be built. And verse 24 says, greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Again, notice the affection within the early church. And then finally, verse 25, grace be with you all. That is the desire of this pastor for his flock, this teacher for his people, that God's grace would be with them which is what he has been doing this whole time, right? Explaining the grace of God in Jesus. And now he blesses them, asking God to pour out his grace, apart from which all the words in the world will do no good. And so what more can be said than grace be with you all. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would pour out your grace on us. We need your grace. We need your mercy in your son. Show it to us, Father, as we seek to serve you faithfully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.